Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with James Don't, CEO of Barnes & Noble, on how 2023 is proving to be a bumper year for the bookstore chain. Plus, the return of the celebrated Argentinian English-language publication, The Buenos Aires Herald, and an annual print title on the restaurant scene in Lisbon. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start with James Don't. He's the man commanding the revival of Barnes & Noble, the largest bookstore chain in the US. Don't is also responsible for Waterstones in the UK and his Don't Books shops here in London, including one very close to us here at Midori House. The chain announced the opening of new stores in the US this year, which is remarkable news. And James stopped by at our studios to tell me the changes he's been implementing at Barnes & Noble. James Don't, welcome to Monaco 24. You've been here many times. We featured you in the, in the magazine because, I mean, you're uh, such an interesting uh, figure living uh, Don't Books. Now you're the CEO of Barnes & Noble, which is the largest book chain in the United States. Well, my first question to you, I've been reading the Barnes & Noble. They are planning to open uh, new stores this year. And I find this such a fantastic story because... You know, perhaps a decade ago, people were saying, oh, I mean, there's no way that Barnes & Noble will, will open new stores. It's, it's kind of the end. Tell us a bit more about this exciting news, actually, for Barnes & Noble for this year. I think, sadly, there have been, well, a decade at least of, of decline at Barnes & Noble. And sort of chain booksellers lost their way. Borders, the other big one, obviously went bankrupt and disappeared. Barnes & Noble more or less left as the only sort of substantial bookseller in the United States, and it's always, with every passing year, closing a substantial number of shops. And that's part of the function of having you know this this long history and and many of the buildings and, and properties being extremely old. So you're always going to be closing a reasonable number. Landlords want to redevelop. The buildings just get too old. Locations change their demographics and things and fall out of favor. Malls uh, disappear and, and with it the Barnes & Noble that's attached to it. So typically Barnes & Noble will close 20-ish stores every year. The problem was they weren't opening any. Luckily, we have both changed the bookselling fortunes of the overall business, which then gives one the, I, th I think it gives one the financial confidence, but it what it really does is give you the psychological confidence to open new shops again and to do so at scale, because if you want to grow, you've got to open up 20 to stand still, and then you need to open quite a lot more than that if, if you want to grow in any substantial way, which we do. And that's to repair, I think, the damage of, of the last uh, 10 odd years. There is plenty of demand for bookshops. The bookshops that we have are doing extremely well. If you become a good bookseller, you will find yourself full of customers. And therefore, it makes sense to reopen shops in locations that have been closed and actually to explore new ones as well. In terms of location, the United States is, is quite spread out in the country, or perhaps are you focused on the East Coast, West Coast? I'm quite curious where are the Barnes and Nobles plans for the US? 
Well, both the existing estate is, in some ways, it's predictable. Um, mm. A lot on the East Coast, as you say, a lot on the West Coast. And then in the major metropolitan areas, you know, we have a lot in each of the big cities, really. Though also, if you knew where the, the real estate people, the property people were located and where they lived, you would suddenly understand why there seemed to be very great concentrations in the Atlanta area, for example, in Georgia, or, or in Dallas, Houston, in Texas. We've got in both of those places large numbers of shops. But basically, we're in East Coast, West Coast and then a presence in literally every single state in the United States. Every single um, one? Every single one. But also some sort of curious absences, um, none in Washington, D.C. itself, plenty in Virginia, more or less deserted the metropolitan city centers other than New York City. Um, so again, getting back into those kind of locations seems extremely important. Tell us about some of the changes you've implemented or still want to implement, because, of course, it's a long process. I mean, there's so many shops. I mean, it's not, I'm sure it's not an easy task. But the shops itself, they changed. I mean, because, of course, it's a bookstore, but they were selling all sorts of things. You know, they were selling, you know, batteries, a lot of board games, toys, which I'm, I'm sure some of them are still selling it. But there are more books, right? That's perhaps the secret of the success, too. I think certainly becoming a, a good bookseller is a secret to mm. selling more books if you are a, a bookseller. And sadly, that mission, I think, had been diluted and the business itself had been run by retailers. And retailers in all other sectors have a you know simple proposal, which is we decide what is the best form of chemist or women's clothing or whatever it is that you do. And then you replicate that precisely and identically across all of your stores. That's what Zara does. That's what Boots does, Walgreens, Best Buy, Curry's, whoever it might be, whatever you're selling, you decide on your retail model and you execute it precisely and identically across the nation. And that's what customers expect of you. The trouble with books is if you do that with books, you end up with some sort of identikit type bookstores, same books in the same place, is really very boring. Trying to create these sort of everyman bookshop, I think, is a mistake. And what we've done is decentralize very substantially, leaving the responsibility for how they merchandise and which books they put where and how they replenish their books entirely in the hands of each of the bookselling teams in each store. And then, as you say, really being quite rigorous around what are the other things that we sell alongside books and being sure that they complement books, which is a simple enough test. Uh, do they challenge the mind? Are they about writing and paper? That is a, a decent test. And if they don't pass that, we shouldn't have them in our store, which is why things like batteries have, <laughs> are no longer in there and, and we no longer sell sort of great mounds of drinking water and, and the other things that, frankly, also visually made our shops much, much less attractive. But really, bookselling is around individual booksellers deciding what their customers want and presenting those books, which will be different in each store, as attractively as they possibly can. It's I, I love this idea that you're giving more freedoms to the stores to, you know, to showcase the books they want, because perhaps someone in Dallas might be different from someone in New York as well. Is that something that you've learned here in London with Don't Books as well? Because I also feel that the don't bookshops, they are quite personalized in a way as well. Yes, I, I for uh, more than 20 years, 21, mm. 22 years, um, I sat in Maribyrn High Street and sold books out of Dawn Books, and that was my shop. And mm. we opened up uh, new Dawn Books here and there, largely because people in Maribyrn High Street got sort of slightly fed up and wanted to do their own thing. But each of those sort of crafted their own shop. And, and the one in Hampstead was different to the one in Holland Park. And, and so it went on. So I, and you know, frankly, I had not a great deal of interest in, in what they were up to. I, I was only interested in what I was up to and my customers. And I took that ethos then first to Waterstones. And 
Waterstones effectively had gone bankrupt. And by putting in that ethos and that book-selling philosophy, Waterstones began to succeed and, and in fact, succeeded tremendously well. And now that we're doing it in the United States, we find that actually if you let booksellers get on with their trade, they are to varying degrees good at their craft and where they're good, you do extremely well. And where you do badly, you, you need to go and get the neighboring bookseller to go and help. So you keep it local, keep it focused on the individual teams. And to the extent that we centrally do anything, it is to support the stores, sometimes just in very boring things like money to replace the light bulbs and mm. fix the escalators or whatever else from the fabric of the store, but also just to challenge and articulate the principles of good book selling and, and challenge the teams to meet those. What's your relation at the moment with with the British operation? Of course, I mentioned Don't Books, but yes, Waterstones as well, which is the largest UK chain. So we're talking about big numbers here as well, right? Yes, I mean, I spend now most of my time in, in the United States because Barnes & Noble is at an early stage of, mm. of change and evolution, and that's where the focus is. Waterstones is effectively run by other people, but I still, you know, I have the title mm. of CEO there, so I have some responsibilities and keep a strong eye on it. But also my heart still lies with Dawn Books. Do you have to adapt to the taste as well? Because I, 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 I don't know how much they are similar, perhaps, the the American taste for books, you know, when you look at the bestseller list, for example, and the British one. Are there a lot of more similarities or differences in your view? I think there are far more differences within each country mm. than there are between the countries, but mm. there are very considerable differences. Mm. And that's why it's so important that you give autonomy to each individual bookstore to do what they want. But to all intents and purposes, we sell the same books being published by the same publishers on the same day, different covers, different prices, but otherwise it's the same. If a book is a bestseller in the United States, it will be in the United Kingdom and vice versa. And you know, I think you know, we both in both countries read the English language and the talent is drawn from across the world. It's, it's by no means just um, US and UK writers, of course. So for us, it is sort of finding... Um, the new turning over the new stones and and finding the new talent um, and I think that's what good booksellers do so I think there is a bit of learning between um, ourselves between Waterstones and, and Barnes and Noble to a degree um, but but also we are constantly on the eye of what the independents are up to and you know if Don Books has got a window and is championing a book you can be pretty sure Waterstones will be looking at it closely reading it and, and then individual Waterstones sort of will be following and, and selling the book uh, and and that sort of guerrilla nature of book selling at the moment, I think, is very effective. And one thing, actually, I'm not sure actually what's your idea for this, but last time I went to Barnes & Noble uh, in New York, and actually there was quite a good uh, magazine selection. What's the relationship of Barnes & Noble and magazines now? And the only reason I ask, because especially in the U.S., there are fewer and fewer places that are actually selling magazines. There are almost no newsstands in the street. So I was wondering, is that one of the products that you want to cull or, or perhaps continue? No, I mean, newsstand is central to the Barnes & Noble proposition. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a huge uh, offer uh, in every single um, store. And it's uh, a, a very, very key and important part. I think that it's something that we need to understand how to do better and uh, keep on promoting. We are challenged by the fact that there are less titles. Um, um, we do a tremendous business importing, particularly from Europe, um, and, uh, and are one of the few places that is, is reliable um, to stocking across the board. 
Um, and I think um, we benefit as we do from books in being effectively the last man standing. If you want to read, if you want to go to a bookstore in many, many places in both the United Kingdom and, and the United States, you need to go to either Waterstones or Barnes and Noble because everybody else has gone. And that's now true also for newsstands and magazines. Uh, and it's an essential part of what, what, what I think why people come into the shops. And of course, it works beautifully with books. Um, it is about reading. It's about stimulating ideas. It's about curiosity. Um, so it works um, very effectively. And we also have a big, big cafe business alongside. We have cafes in all of our Barnes and & Nobles. And, and, and the newsstand and the cafe is a very natural partner. And they're complementary, like I think that's... And, of course, we discussed a little bit the fact that there are new shops opening, which is I find quite exciting. What what, what are the plans for Barnes & Noble for 2023? I mean, besides the new shops, I mean, I think I've read somewhere, but please tell me if it's true or not, that there will be some sort of membership as well with customers uh, for Barnes & Noble. But what what, what can you tell us for plans for 2023? Um, We're we're very, very busy. Um, It's Mm -hmm. sort of relatively early on in this sort of changing... Um, what Barnes & Noble is as a bookseller. Mm. I, I joined at the end of 2019, so had a very short time before the pandemic hit. Yeah. Um, the pandemic has sort of upset plans um, considerably. Um, helped in some ways, and not, not least that um, it's encouraged people to read uh, much more and, and our business is, is much, much stronger. Um, but we are we're, we're concentrating on not, not just opening new stores, but also investing in, the, in existing stores and making those more attractive. We are changing the membership program, which has been the same for 20 years, um, and introducing something which is is actually very closely modeled on the Waterstones free program, where you effectively have a stamp and save. The more you spend, the more you save, um, and it's free, whereas the Barnes & Noble program has has been a paid program. Um, And and I hope that that will allow us to do what it has allowed us to do in the United Kingdom, which is... Um, understand what people are reading and and be an intelligent bookseller in an online field um, as well as in in the shops and in particular um, send informative hopefully amusing uh, interesting emails uh, to people appropriate to their reading um, uh, which you can do if you know what they've bought I'm, I'm curious about something so many stores uh, in the US I mean do you, do you do you go sometimes say you know what I want to see our shop in Utah or in Virginia as I said do you do, you do some kind of random visits perhaps to, to see how the shop is doing or, um, or or you have to stay mainly in New York because it's already busy enough there I'm following um, exactly the same trajectory it's second time around um, uh, what I did at Waterstones was uh, concentrate on fixing the central um, part of the business um, and only then uh, visit the shops and once I did start visiting the shops I visited all of them um, I've pretty got to the point now where I've just begun to visit um, the Barnes & Noble uh, stores um, the US is a, is a much bigger <laughs> yes. country so the, the challenge of visiting all of them will be more difficult but yes I uh, very often go out on a Thursday night and I'll take a flight to wherever and, and turn up in Milwaukee and see seven or eight stores there turn up in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, or wherever it might be, and see the seven or eight stores there. So yes, um, uh, but it's it's a big old place. Thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure. And after the show, I'm off to Don Brooks here, just around the corner. And now we head to Argentina, where celebrated English-language paper, the Buenos Aires Herald, has reopened more than six years after it closed for financial reasons. 
The paper founded by Scottish immigrant William Cathcart in 1876 was revered as one of the few opposition voices during the military dictatorship of the 70s and 80s and famed for its coverage of the junta's extrajudicial killings. I had the pleasure to speak with the Herald's managing editor, Amy Booth, on the return of the brand and plans for 2023. Amy Booth, Managing Editor of the Buenos Aires Herald, welcome to Monaco 24. And Amy, this is going to be a very happy interview because it's the return of the Buenos Aires Herald, which is such a prestigious newspaper based in Argentina, closed down in 2017, but now it's back and you're involved with it. Before we talk about it, Amy, tell us about your experience there in Argentina. You are originally from the UK, but you moved to Buenos Aires, right? Yeah, I moved from the UK initially to Bolivia, where I worked for a couple of years in an NGO. From there, I came to Buenos Aires in 2018 to study at the University of Buenos Aires, a master's degree. So the Herald had already shut down by the time I arrived in Argentina. And I think it was missed. You know, it was really missed. I heard a lot of people making comments about how, oh, well, we used to have this great newspaper so I've been a journalist since I've been here and I have written for places like The Guardian or the BBC, but I really feel that lack, I, or I had really felt that lack of a space where you could really go into the fine detail about some of what's going on here because Argentine politics can be really complex, you know, we're in the past year, we've had an assassination attempt against the vice president. The vice president has been sentenced for sort of defrauding the state. And so, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to kind of unravel. And I think it's so important and so significant that once again, we have a space, especially in an electoral year, because Argentina has presidential elections in October. So important to have a space where we can actually break down that information about like Latin America's third largest economy with quality and with the attention it deserves. And Amy, we should, I know you, you haven't worked in the previous iteration of the Buenos Aires Herald, but it's been such an important paper for Argentina. During the military dictatorship was one of the few kind of opposition voices, and he did an excellent job. I mean, it does have a lot of kind of history, right? Yeah, for sure. So as a newspaper in its previous iteration, the Herald existed for 141 years. It was founded in sort of the 1870s. It originally used to cover a lot of sort of shipping information in English because Argentina has historically had a British community among many other nationalities. And in the years of the dictatorship, a lot of, well, you know, human rights organizations now say that it's 30,000 people who disappeared, tortured, murdered, and the most of the mainstream press was not covering this because there was censorship and there was the very real fear that, you know, it could happen to you if you spoke out. And despite this risk to their lives and to their, you know, physical integrity and to their families, Herald journalists at the time, they were reporting on it. On our first day, the director of the project, Estefania Pozo, she showed us a copy of the Herald's, like one of the volumes of the Herald's archives. And 
inside the front cover was a request for information from a judge about people who disappeared and like the front cover of one of those volumes was about someone who had been disappeared and it was on the it was on the front and so as you said it it was a prestigious paper it was a brave paper the journalists were really pioneering they went above and beyond in the line of duty and so for the team now like we really feel the weight of that responsibility they're big shoes to fill I know that we are all very dedicated to the human rights cause and communicating Argentina's reality and I hope we do honor to it. And at the same time, it's good that you're back because it it is a trusted brand. So I think in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite nice. I'm sure a lot of Argentines and, and people that live there as well are happy or people like me who are just interested in the country. Tell us how is it going to work, this new iteration? At the moment, it will be a news website. But what are the future plans? Tell us a bit more about that. Like most of the rest of the media landscape, in even just the five years since the Herald was shut down, the media landscape has changed a lot. Everything is a lot more online. So with that in mind, this is a digital first product, really. So at the moment, what we have is a news website. We're also boosting our social media operations. So people will be able to follow us on Instagram. We'll be posting the occasional video We would like to have print products further down the line. Obviously, this is still a really new product. We're quite a small team as well. So we need to take our time to make sure we're doing everything right. But yeah, we would love to have some form of print newspaper, perhaps, or potentially a magazine, as well as other digital formats. Like We like the idea of potentially doing a podcast. But yeah, I mean, it's a really new project. The reception from the relaunch has been great. So I think the sky's the limit. Oh, I love that. And and yeah, I think a magazine or, or even a weekly newspaper, for example, would be great. But th that's that's super interesting. And you, t you told me this year we have elections in Argentina. And I have to say, Amy, you know, I try to follow Argentine politics, but I think this is the interesting job of a paper like yours, because it is quite a complex country, right? We're even discussing that sometimes you have to explain things for people that are actually not from Argentina, because there's quite a lot of specific things when it comes to the economy, the politics that are different, even comparing to other South American countries. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. So one thing that is interesting about Argentine politics that certainly as a Brit, I really struggle to get my head around is the fact that here you have parties that club together into coalitions. And so people usually talk about the coalition that's ruling or the opposition coalition, but then parties can leave and enter these coalitions, especially ahead of an election. And then quite often the coalition itself changes name. So you've got the coalition's current name, the coalition's old name, a number of parties that are within the coalition. And sometimes they're quite big tent coalitions. You know, you've got pretty far right parties in the same grouping as some quite centrist parties that some would even consider center left. So I can understand why that's pretty difficult to get your head around if you're not from here. And then the economy, again, yeah, Argentina is a country where there are multiple exchange rates, for instance, because there is an official exchange rate, but the government, for instance, places limits on who can buy dollars and how many they can buy. So 
that's one of the reasons that we have something called the dollar blue, which is kind of the informal dollar that people buy and sell. And like that's technically illegal, but it's extremely widely used. And then export sectors also are sometimes given preferential exchange rates to kind of persuade them to liquidate their stocks a bit, especially the soy. So there's been a soy dollar. There's also been a Malbec dollar, they're calling it, to kind of try and support the wine sector. But then there's a Coldplay dollar, which is for foreign artists performing in Argentina. There's a tourist dollar, a Qatar dollar, which is named after the World Cup, but it's for people who go abroad, not maybe just to visit their family in a neighboring country, but to spend large amounts abroad. So there's a threshold for that. And I can see why, if you're not from here and constantly monitoring it, that it gets very difficult to kind of stay on top of. In fact, some of the stories that are among our most read are pieces written for visitors from abroad about, okay, if I come here and I make a payment on my card, what rate am I going to get? How does it work? Why is it initially showing up that I got the official rate? It makes it look like it cost me twice as much. So, you know, we go through explaining how this stuff works with thanks to our kind of network of sources and our expertise. And coming back a little bit to the business model of the Buenos Aires Herald, I spoke to other publishers and a lot of people are moving to subscription-based service. Do you plan to have the same at the Buenos Aires Herald or is it too early to say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty early days, to be honest. We're still exploring different avenues. I would imagine that, you know, we will be having some advertising on the site, which at the moment you'll have noticed has a very sort of clean design. I would imagine that there may be some form of paywall at some point, but what that might look like, what stories it might cover, uh, how much it would be, that's something that we're still figuring out. Thank you very much, Amy. And if you want to check it out, go to buenosairesherald.com. And we're heading now to Lisbon, where our correspondent Gaia Lutz spoke to Stephanie Pons, the founder of Lisbon Insiders, a platform all about Lisbon's thriving restaurant scene. The project, which started humbly on social media, now encompasses an annual print magazine, an award ceremony, and there's even talks of a potential food market. Far from a fine-dining gastronomical critics magazine, Lisbon Insiders takes a more relaxed approach to its tips, celebrating places with soul first and foremost, to provide readers with delicious little nuggets on the stories behind these establishments. This whole project started like now two years ago through an Instagram page and now it turned into a newsletter, like a kind of, um, we are like a media platform having different support, a print magazine, an award ceremony, a website. Can I ask you, if you can backtrack, where were you before being here in Lisbon? What was your background and, and what made you get into, into prints now, but obviously much more? I, I work in the hospitality industry since uh, more than 10 years. I lived in Australia for six years and I wanted to come back to Europe. So five years ago, people were like, why, why Lisbon? What are you going to do there? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to figure it out. And then I, was, I started to work here for a hospitality group. They were like buying different restaurants and I was the digital marketing manager for them. And then I was like always having like those um, little hidden gems in Lisbon, my favorite restaurant. And each time my friends were coming to Lisbon, they were asking me 
where to go, where to eat, where to sleep. And I was like, how can I share those places in a nicer way and also kind of supporting those places because this whole project started right in the middle of COVID. So I was actually featuring restaurants that were not open at the time. But the idea was, okay, those restaurants, they are very struggling. They don't receive any support. It's very complicated for them. They're doing this my passion and, and love. The food is amazing. The way to support them is like as soon as they reopen, you have to go there. So it, it kind of started like this, the Instagram page. And then I think maybe it was launched at the right time, right moment. It started to grow quite organically. And then I was like, okay, what could be the next step? I really want to support this industry. And I was like, okay, I think I want to do a print magazine. And can I just ask, doing print is, is quite a bold move. How, how did you think you were going to finance this? Did you have a, a business idea behind it? Or were you just going to try and see how it goes? Well, I to go a little bit backwards. So when Lisbon Insider started to become a little bit bigger, for me, it was just an Instagram page. It was a hobby. It was, I was doing it on the side of my, of my full-time job. And I had like two investors who come to see me saying, Seth, what are you doing? You're doing really good. Your recommendations are really good. And I think a lot of people will like what you're doing, would like to invest in, you know, to put money to invest, but the condition is like you have to do it full time. And I was like, well, it was a, it was a bit unexpected because usually it's the opposite. You have an, you know, you have an idea, then you have your deck, you look for investors. And um, so it was a bit the, the contrary for me. And I took the summer and I said, okay, what, how can I, you know, like what could be the next stage? What could be the next step? I'm really into print magazine because my partner is also, he's an art, art director and graphic designer and he he does a lot of print magazine. So I have like a <laughs> full collection of magazine, like, like everywhere, I think I almost can open a shop. So always been really into the paper. I know that the, the work that involved the magazine behind, but also I learn it on, <laughs> on the ground because I'm not myself a journalist and not myself a copywriter. So it was kind of a bold movement, but also a little bit and maybe naive at the same time because I was not sure what was all the work that was involved behind it. And, and tell me a little bit, because I know there's a, a big focus in restaurants, but it's not only um, restaurants. I know there are different categories to the magazine. You divide all the restaurants. How did this expand and you organize your thoughts? So I call it Alpha Guide Alpha Magazine because we have indeed 12 different categories. The categories goes by five nominees by category. And then the, um, or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe because the print is launched at the same time of the awards. Uh, so the nominee of the awards are the one also featuring into the print magazine. But it's really important to say that this magazine is completely independent. No one can pay to be in the magazine. So the restaurant, they don't know, actually, that when we start the whole process involved behind, they have no idea that they are nominee. They just know, like, three weeks ago. And then for the selection, the idea is, like, to, for the categories, is have um, a bit of funky categories. Like, for this year, we have one called uh, Rocking Young Chef. We have the Golden Oldies. So Golden Oldies, I really wanted on, on this one to highlight also the, um, the restaurant that managed to keep the same quality of eight decades, which is very not easy because I think in the food scene, sometimes you have like trendy and new restaurant and keep 
consistent is not that easy. So sometimes you can, in having a guide, sometimes it's not easy because I can go two, three, four times to a restaurant having a really good experience and maybe someone go there like three weeks later and then can have a, like not such a great experience. So um, we really wanted to highlight also those restaurants that are institution and, and being able to be consistent for over decades, which is quite rare. This is for now, just to make clear to our listeners, an annual edition, right? Yes. And, and tell me a little bit about the awards process, because we just skimmed through it. When did that idea come about? Why did you think it was good to give an awards and have this live event as well? So the um, initial ideas started with the print magazine. I was really, really, really super excited about doing a print magazine. And then I was thinking of a way of doing the release of the magazine. I was like, I don't want to do like just a normal release and just like a normal launch. And I say, like, maybe we can combine the launch of the magazine and also the restaurant involved in the future in the magazine could be the nominee of the award. So like this, we really celebrate the food zine through the launch of the print and the award ceremony, which is also an annual. So I saw like it's kind of um, a nice moment to create this excitement around the food zine and all the people involved behind the magazine, the process, but also future. Where can our readers um, perhaps find Lisbon Insiders? Are you just selling in Lisbon for now? How's the distribution going? So the distribution is going, you can find it online, but we have a bit of trouble with that because the first issue has been printed in Germany because it, it was during the pandemic. So it was very complicated to find paper at that time. So then when it's sent out from Germany, it's going with a national post office. So sometimes it can take three weeks to a month to receive the magazine. So, of course, people, they are expecting the magazine in maybe a few days and when they're planning the trip to go to Lisbon and, you know, and <laughs> the magazine is arriving one month later. So um, this we have to figure out how we can improve that. Otherwise, you can find it uh, in different stockists here in Lisbon. You mentioned this about taking a bit longer, but I think it's important to highlight this is an annual magazine. It's not something that is um, very timely. It's almost more of a coffee table book, right? Even the, the design. Was that the idea as well? It's something that you keep. It's not, it's not necessarily something that has to be very timely, right? Yes. These are, the idea is like I put a lot of effort behind it. We have a big team involved to do this, this magazine, to be this magazine alive. The production cost of this magazine is also very expensive because... I wanted to have the quality again, as you mentioned. I really wanted that it's more like more than a magazine, like a, a coffee table, and kind of also like if you live in Lisbon or if you visit Lisbon, you can you know if you're oh I don't know tonight I want to go to a restaurant but I have no idea you can just open it and 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 you can find a place where you where you think you're gonna have a good time or the food for the vibe or for for everything. So then the idea is also that people can collect them. So this is one once a year because it, it's not outdated. The, the first issue is not outdated. We're just sitting in front here of a, a prototype for the second issue. You mentioned the prints are just coming this afternoon. Can you tell me a little bit about, you told me a bit about two categories. What else um, readers can expect from this new issue? So the design and layout remains a little bit the same because it's a, it's a style of the magazine. But on this new issue, the reader is going to be able to find super cool, interesting story. 
we work also quite closely with Ines Andrade Matos, who is a dear friend, and he, she helped me also a lot to do the curation and what we should talk about. And so this year, for this edition, we really wanted to talk about the connection that Lisbon with um, Macau, Goa cuisine, and so highlighting the, the faces and places where we can find the food coming from these countries. And also Cascais, because I think the food scene in Cascais is, is uh, really interested. Last year was Caparica, because Caparica was like kind of blossoming and booming. And now Cascais, so we have like a very strong interest in what is happening in, in Cascais. And the second edition of Lisbon Insiders has just come out. So if you're planning a visit to the Portuguese capital, be sure to order your copy. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Adam Hitton, who is editing the stack for the final time. Good luck with everything, Adam. It's an emotional moment here at Midori House. And again, if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And we'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Beth Dito, I wrote the book. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.